America at a Crossroads is a weekly live webinar series that brings together journalists, scholars, thought leaders, and policymakers for discussions regarding the state of American democracy, where we've been, where we are, and where we're going. The series was jointly founded by Jews United for Democracy and Justice and Community Advocates, Inc. To register for our live webinars, join our email list at JewsUnitedForDemocracy.org. Now to introduce tonight's panel and moderator, one of the founders of Jews United for Democracy and Justice, former Congressman Mel Levine. Mel has been an essential part of the America at a Crossroads team, helping us craft our programs and securing countless guests, including tonight's. We wouldn't be the same without him. It's a pleasure to welcome him back. Mel? Thank you, David. We wouldn't be the same without you either, uh, or Janice or Zev. It's been a real pleasure um, over all these months days, programs, and years working with you guys. I, I share your uh, extraordinary pleasure uh, about welcoming Professor Lawrence Tribe. Nobody could be a more appropriate speaker at this time. Um, very briefly, because it's pretty difficult to encapsulate his extraordinary career, he was born in Shanghai, uh, clerk for U.S. Supreme Court Justice Potter Stewart, and then joined the Harvard Law Faculty in 1968, where he had an extraordinary career. He was a prolific writer and author and revered by his students because of his, of, of his constitutional knowledge and ability to teach it. His students have ranged from President Barack Obama to Chief Justice John Roberts and Justice Elena Kagan, Jamie Raskin, Attorney General Merrick Garland. I also think Adam Schiff was a student of yours. Yes, he um, was. And um, and they're all very proud of, of, of being your student. I'm going to take the liberty of a very brief personal story regarding Professor Tribe that he will not remember, uh, but that I have remembered for almost half a century. In 1973, I was a very young aide to California Senator John Tunney, who had become chair of a Judiciary Subcommittee on Constitutional Rights. Uh, he needed a witness who was a sophisticated scholar of the Constitution. I don't remember the subject matter, uh, but I that I vividly remember Professor Tribe's performance. Uh, he had been highly recommended. He got to the law school actually during my third year, but I didn't know him. But by the time of this hearing, uh, he was extremely well known, uh, at least among my friends. Um, I was told we couldn't have a better witness. We invited him to testify. Again, I don't remember the specific subject, but what I do remember is the Professor Tribe testified and responded to sophisticated constitutional questions without any notes. All of us were blown away, uh, and I have remembered that very vividly uh, for half a century. And today, as David mentioned, no one is more trenchant in describing the range of issues that are threatening our democracy or are clearer about how to combat them. And interviewing Professor Tribe is a very longtime friend with whom I went to college a full decade longer than that hearing uh, that Larry participated in, and who has been had an extraordinarily impressive career in journalism, law, and legal education. Uh, that's Henry Weinstein, who spent decades as a journalist at the LA Times, the New York Times, and the Wall Street Journal uh, before going into uh, uh, teaching law. 
He is now a highly respected professor at UC Irvine Law School. He has won shares of two Pulitzers and the Columbia School of Journalism's John Chancellor Award for, quote, courage, integrity, curiosity, and intelligence, end quote, uh, characteristics that I have known Henry to have for more than half a century. Henry, um, floor is yours. Thanks very much for that uh, kind introduction, uh, Mel. Welcome, Larry. There's a, a myriad of topics, so let's get right to it. You, you have spent more than 50 years writing about the Supreme Court, teaching about the Supreme Court, being a law clerk to a Supreme Court justice, and arguing dozens of cases at the United States Supreme Court. Could you give us your assessment of where the court is now? Well, it's a sad story, really. The court, at the time that I was a law student and a law clerk, uh, was in its glory days. Brown v. Board had been decided in 1954 when I was 13, but it, it seemed to me to emblematize what it was that the court was all about. When I was in law school, Griswold v. Connecticut was decided. Uh, when I clerked for Potter Stewart, I ended up helping him draft Cats v. United States, which established the broad principle that the Fourth Amendment protects people, not places, and that electronic surveillance was subject to the requirements of search and seizure. It seemed to be a golden age. And when I started teaching constitutional law, it became clear to me the more I learned about the court, the more atypical that period was. The Supreme Court in the early years was fundamentally the bastion of property and power. It was really not a place to vindicate human rights or minority interests. Dred Scott, of course, is infamous, but it's not alone. In the Reconstruction period, it was the Supreme Court that undermined civil rights by invalidating the efforts that Congress made to enfranchise former slaves. The Civil Rights Acts were struck down. Uh, it was a dark period. But then, of course, there was this brief shining moment. It's almost like Camelot, but it was brief. Uh, it began to end in the Burger years and the Rehnquist years, and now we have a court cascading toward minority power, very little protection for minority rights, increasingly little protection for the human body, for autonomy, for privacy, Lots of protection for corporate power, for wealth, wealth when it invokes free speech as a bastion for uh, for drowning out the voices uh, of others. So it's not a not a happy time in the Supreme Court. If I were to begin teaching constitutional now a law now, I think the court would play a smaller role uh, in the syllabus. It would be one of many enemies of human rights. Not the only one, but one. Uh, but I'm going on too long, Henry. I'm sure you have lots of things to ask. Well, could you say, is not a happy place. Right. Could you say a little bit more about what has changed? And the reason I, that prompts that question is um, when the court um, issued the Roe versus Wade decision 50 years ago, five of the seven justices who voted in favor of the Roe versus Wade decision were appointed by Republican 
presidents, enough to constitute a majority. And then about 20 years later, when the court rebuffed challenges to the rights to reproductive freedom and Planned Parenthood versus Casey, all five justices who voted in favor of that decision were appointed by Republican presidents. So clearly something more has changed than merely the fact you know, because there were Republican presidents voting, I mean, Republican appointees voting for those things. So can you say a little more about what's changed? Well, what's changed is that the Republican Party decided roughly around 1980 uh, that the place where it could really make progress because it represented an increasingly minority view in the country, the place where it could really make progress was with the federal judiciary. And it started a very long project very ideologically driven, embodied in a very well-funded organization, the Federalist Society, to put right-wing ideologues who would use the law uh, to shape policy in right-leaning directions uh, without much concern for the constraints of, of constitutional tradition, constitutional doctrine. It was a long-term project. They appointed very young judges. They basically appointed judges who had been much more carefully vetted as time went on. And we now end up with a situation in which the court's division, for the first time in our history, is very much along party lines. Uh, and it was a project that Democrats just didn't take all that seriously. Every time people would say your right to privacy is on the line. Roe v. Wade is in danger. There was a kind of yawn. People said, you've got to focus on bread and butter issues, the interests of working people. Nobody cares about uh, the possibility that Roe v. Wade will someday be overturned. The other side, however, bided its time, kept getting more people on the court with its ideology, and then the rest is history. I mean, we, we know what happened in Bush v. Gore, five to four decision uh, in which Justice Scalia, who had been unanimously confirmed, cast the, the decisive vote. And Justice uh, Thomas, also as part of the 5-4 majority, Thomas, of course, you know, was, was there for a number of reasons, one of which was that Thurgood Marshall left the court a little sooner than he might have. We now have Ruth Ginsburg leaving the court a little later than she might have. A number of coincidences coupled with the long game played effectively by the right has stacked the court, really packed it with people who are pre-selected in terms of the results they will reach on certain key agenda issues, often disguised in terms of jurisprudential philosophy. But if you teach constitutional law these days in a way that takes doctrine and philosophy seriously, takes methodology seriously, you're missing the boat. It's become overwhelmingly a political game. And that's sort of sad for people like me who have spent decades refining and sort of teaching about how certain doctrines can be understood through a kaleidoscopic perspective that achieves more progressive results. So you served on a commission that uh, President Biden set up to study the Supreme Court and how it was working. So you know, and you spent a number of months, hearings, there were formal papers presented. So when you, what did you come out of that with? I mean, are you, are you in favor of term limits for Supreme Court justices or some other form of change? 
Well, certainly if I were writing on a clean slate, I would never adopt a system that no other country in the world with a powerful apex court has, a system of life tenure, no age limits, no term limits. It's inconsistent with our form of government to give so much power to any individual for a lifetime. So I would have term limits. But one of the things that became clear through the very intense work of that commission was that there is a path dependency that means that if you are going to make changes now, as opposed to writing a constitution from scratch, as I helped a few countries do in the course of my career, Mm -hmm. you really can't get there from here without worrying about transitions. If we were to impose term limits now, we'd probably have to do it by a constitutional amendment. Partly, just as a practical matter, the current court would not buy any of the rather novel theories that say that term limits would be consistent with with the Constitution. A constitutional amendment would be almost impossible to get. But even assuming you could get it, you'd have to phase the thing in. It would take 15 years at least before the term limit process of probably 18 years with each just each president uh, in a single term nominating two justices before that really took effect. So it wouldn't solve any of our short term problems. Would it would it take as long to expand the court? Well, but let me just add one thing, Henry. Even in the long run, if a president confronts a Senate of the opposite party, the idea that each president would have two nominations would just fall apart. So it's very hard to do when you really focus on it. To enlarge the court would be much simpler. Take some mere statute. Nobody doubts that it's constitutional. The legacy of the FDR attempt to pack the court is a dark shadow over these proposals. And people, a lot of people who at, at the outset react that way, oh, it's a terrible idea. There'd be tit for tat. You expand the court, then the Republicans will expand it more. We'll eventually have a much larger court. Gradually, people like me who felt that way at the beginning of this uh, of this year-long study that the President's Commission on Supreme Court Reform undertook ended up concluding that it probably would be a good idea. Nine justices is too few in a country like this. Thirteen would make a lot more sense. And if someone says, if you guys do it, then when the Republicans have the ability to do it, they will too, forgets that they will do it anyway. That is the idea that we had better not play hardball because somebody like McConnell, when uh, when he again has the majority uh, leader's position in the Senate, will play hardball too. Forget that the other side is not constrained in the way that many of us are. Right. Okay. So I want you to talk about, there were many significant decisions that the court issued last year. I would like you to just talk about a a couple of them. One, the Dobbs um, reproductive rights decision, and then the Kennedy versus Bremerton case about, uh, which has involved religious issues. I'm going to give you the floor on those two. There are others too, but I think those are two that are particularly significant. Well, they're particularly significant, partly because they both represent the ascendancy of a kind of theocracy in the court. That is, Dobbs, in repudiating 50 years of human rights, women's rights, control over reproductive autonomy, privacy, the equality of the sexes is what it was really about, Roe v. Wade, when it ripped that apart 
really all at once, simply because they had the votes. Uh, Dobbs did so on the basis of a theory that life, human life, personhood really, although they didn't quite go so far as to say it's a person, begins at conception, at, at some magical moment when when the uh, sperm and the ovum unite. Well, if you really take that seriously, it's it's quite revolutionary, and it certainly means that the IUD and all kinds of other things are or go out the window, um, but it was based on a sen- essentially a religiously contested view that the human soul sort of comes into being like the Big Bang at the moment uh, that the chromosomes start mixing. Uh, and that idea that, that a minority can impose its religious views on the rest of us uh, was very much involved in Bremerton, where Coach Kennedy at the 50-yard line would say a prayer, and though he didn't force the members of his team to huddle around him, they obviously did so because they felt pressured. And in any case, the wall of separation between church and state is supposed to prevent the government from endorsing religion, putting its thumb on the side of a religious view, whether or not people are coerced. But the Supreme Court, in saying it's perfectly fine for the government-paid coach of a of a public school's football team to pray on the 50-yard line, despite the way that that endorses religion, uh, that really represented a, a sort of a, a massive tidal wave in the direction of eroding the wall of separation between church and state. And the court really didn't hesitate even to make up facts in order to get there. It said, for example, in the majority opinion, the coach was simply praying alone at the 50-yard line. It was a violation of his religious freedom and of his freedom of speech to fire him for doing that. It fell to Justice Sotomayor in dissent to say, what do you mean he was praying alone? He was surrounded by his players. They were obviously under pressure. You've just made up facts. And that's the, the really scariest thing about the current court. It is quite prepared to make up law out of thin air, to make up facts out of an alternative reality, very much like the president who appointed several of these justices. Uh, and we, when we do not have respect for facts, respect for truth, some degree of respect for precedent, recognition that even though when a decision has been made, it's obviously subject to reconsideration. We're glad that Plessy was reconsidered in Brown. Nonetheless, you have to have better reasons than just, well, now there are five of us, we've got the votes and get out of here. Um, so the departure from that kind of respect, both for facts and for law, is characteristic now of the judicial branch, where for many years we had hoped to find, even though we may not have agreed with its opinions, we'd hoped to find sort of greater fidelity to to precedent and, and to factual truth. Justice Sotomayor went so far as to put a photograph in her dissent yeah. showing Kennedy at the 50-yard line with a lot of people um, around him. And uh, I, one of the things that struck me as remarkable was that Justice Gorsuch frequently referred to this as, as, as a private prayer. It certainly did not look like a private prayer in that photograph. I wanted to go back to one thing about, the, about um, to, on your, uh, what your comments on the Dobb decision. One of the things that um, a number of the, the justices, the current majority talk about these days is that they have a jurisprudence of originalism. And Justice Alito certainly talked 
a fair amount about that and going back into history and what you had to show in history in order to justify that somebody had a right. And the one thing that struck me about that, and feel free to disagree with me, it seemed if you if you adopted that theory in whole, it would kind of wipe out a great deal of, of constitutional law um, in this country. After all, women had no rights whatsoever in the US Constitution when it was adopted. Um, and um, Article One, Section 3, um, section two of the Constitution provided that blacks counted as three-fifths of a person for the purpose of congressional representation, which basically gave more power to slaveholding states. So there certainly were things about the Constitution as it was adopted that seem, at least right now, not, not particularly perfect. Well, nothing about it is perfect, and no one would claim that. I mean, the Electoral College obviously is an undemocratic institution, so is the structure of the Senate. What a so-called originalist would say in response to your point about three-fifths of a person basically is that, of course, there are parts of the Constitution that have been changed by amendment, sometimes amendments passed in response to civil war. But the idea that you could change it by updating its meaning is what they resist. But of course, there is no agreement on what the original meaning was of phrases as broad as equal protection of the law or liberty. And when there is proof of what the original meaning was, the so-called originalists feel entirely free to disregard it. For example, it's clear that those people who passed and ratified the 14th Amendment didn't view equal protection of the laws as a mere formality. They viewed it as a practical way of giving a leg up to people who had been subordinated and discriminated against. We know that because they have things like the Freedmen's Bureau that were designed especially to protect Blacks, even if they weren't slaves or even former slaves. And yet the so-called originalists like Thomas, and in this instance, it's going to be Roberts, say that the Constitution in its original meaning is that we should be colorblind. It's not true. It's not true. No historian would affirm it. So originalism is sort of a convenient way of pretending not to take responsibility for your own constitutional philosophy, uh, quite apart from the fact that it ends up with people like Alito looking back to a time when Lord Hale, whom he quotes as an authority on the rights of women, uh, someone who believed that women could be burned as witches when Lord Hale counts for more than uh, than the Supreme Court that decided Roe v. Wade in 1973 or the court that decided the Griswold case in 1965. Right. So I think when a lot of us think about the Constitution, or we think about it as a centerpiece of a democratic society. One of the things that I think I know that you've been critical of, and I'd like you to talk about, is that the court has issued a number of decisions in recent years that sort of had a very um, undemocratic tenor to them, uh, starting with the Shelby County decision, which eviscerated one part of the Voting Rights Act in, several years ago. And the, and the court has two cases uh, coming up, at least two cases coming up this fall, um, one called Merrill versus Milligan coming out of Alabama, and one called Moore versus Harper coming out of North Carolina, which also seem to present threats to democracy. Could you talk about those two cases? Sure. They're both quite frightening to me. 
Uh, Merrill v. Milligan is a case in which the court stands poised to dismantle what little is left of the great Voting Rights Act of 1965. You mentioned Shelby County, in which the court dismantled it to some degree by getting rid of the preclearance provision on the basis that, as Justice Ginsburg pointed out in her dissent, was like saying that because the umbrella has protected us from the rain, we don't need it anymore, we can take it down and we can throw our umbrella away. Uh, that's basically what Roberts was saying when he wrote Shelby County, because we've made some improvements with the help of the Voting Rights Act, so things are a little better than they were in 1965, so we can get rid of the act. Well, what remains of the act, Section 2, is going to be completely decimated in uh, in Merrill v. Milligan. That's the section that basically says, even if you don't have preclearance, when you have district lines that are drawn in such a way that minorities are systematically underrepresented. In Alabama, for example, minorities, uh, African-Americans were something like 27% of the population, but only one of seven districts was created in the districting plan of 2021, only one of seven districts, which is something like uh, 14%, would have a majority of African-Americans. And so the lower courts said, under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, that's a perfect example of something where the lines were obviously drawn to disenfranchise racial minorities. And the court is poised to say, that's racist, because you have to take account of race in order to decide that Alabama is engaged in subordinating racial minorities. That's going to be the line they take in the affirmative action cases as well. They're basically going to say it's racist to try to eliminate racism in a way that pays attention to race. That famous aphorism by Roberts, which actually he took without attribution from a lower court decision, the way to get rid of race discrimination is to stop discriminating based on race. That's scary, and it's anti-democratic in the sense that democracy has to be inclusive. It's not just a matter of one person, one vote. The other case that court has from North Carolina, Moore v. Harper, is in some ways even more frightening. That's a case in which the court seems poised to say that in the two places where the U.S. Constitution specifies that state legislatures are to determine the method by which representatives are selected, members of the House, members of the Senate, to a lesser degree, because that's fixed in the Constitution, two senators per state. Um, and in the elector clause, the one that says state legislatures are to determine how the electoral slate of a state is chosen in the presidential election, in those two places, state legislatures can do whatever they want, even if they violate a state constitutional guarantee of equality. And that really stands poised to make it easier for minorities who don't prevail in the elections in battleground states to basically pick a DeSantis slate or a Trump slate anyway. Uh, so the system, which is already quite undemocratic because of the Electoral College, because of the Senate, because of partisan gerrymandering, uh, the remaining, the kind of remnants of its democratic features are being systematically undone 
by a court that is itself as undemocratic as imaginable, not only because, of course, it's supposed to be a counter-majoritarian institution, but because the majority of the justices were put there by presidents who were elected by a minority of the people, and they were confirmed by senators who represented a distinct minority of the American population. So we are moving gradually toward minoritarian rule by white propertied elites who are losing control of the country and of the culture and are fighting back. And they're fighting back by violence, as we saw in the January 6th uh, insurrection, as well as, what, as, well as by uh, legal manipulation. So speaking of how the court is functioning now, say, compared to the time when you were there, a criticism that's been leveled by conservative for years against the Warren court was that it was a quote unquote activist court. Um, and one, and the, I, one thing I can say about the Warren court, whatever your general view was, I don't recall, and I you know studied not as much as you have, but I studied a lot, but I don't recall them ever soliciting cases. Their role was that they were judging cases as they came to them. But in the last couple of years, at least two of the judges on, on this court, Alito, regarding public uh, employee unions and Clarence Thomas regarding same-sex marriage and some other cases have basically been encouraging people to file lawsuits to give them the opportunity to overturn old decisions. That strikes me as a pretty strong sign of an activist court. What would you say about that? Well, it certainly is. I guess I've, I've never thought that activism versus passivity is a particularly useful Line. I mean, you could say it was activist for the court to solve the problem of, or at least mitigate the problem of coerced confessions by imposing the requirement of Miranda warnings. It wasn't exactly passive for the court to invalidate lots of abortion restrictions across the country in Roe v. Wade. You could call that activist, but because the values being advanced were humanitarian, democratic values and values that I think can be defended as central to the constitutional project. It was the kind of activism that I'm quite comfortable defending. The kind of activism we see now, sort of expanding free speech to include spending limitless amounts of dark money uh, or cutting back dramatically and suddenly, and as you say, at the court's invitation on decades of established rights, that's rather dark kind of activism. Procedurally, you're certainly right. That is a protection against a court that gets outside its lane and begins essentially advancing a prepackaged agenda rather than resolving cases and controversies was the notion that the court sort of, instead of being a roving commission inviting cases of particular kinds, sort of waits for cases to come to it. It exercises discretion in choosing among those that arrive, but it doesn't write concurring opinions or dissenting opinions saying, come on, the water's fine, come on in, uh, urge us to overrule Obergefell or Griswold, we're waiting for you. That kind of activism, I think, procedurally, as well as substantively, puts the court in a quite different and obviously partisan role. One of my favorite former students, Elena Kagan, I think, said it quite rightly recently when she said, uh, really speaking across the aisle to the chief justice, all in public statements, 
Mr. Chief Justice, don't complain that the court is losing respect. It's losing respect because it deserves less respect because it's becoming more overtly a partisan body, basically playing politics in a way that is so different from your your image of just calling balls and strikes that that what you're getting is really what you should have expected. Yes. So you have shifting gears slightly. You have been a, a strong advocate for for some months about the need, from your point of view, to indict for the government to indict President Trump. And I want to ask you a couple of questions about that. One general and one specific. Um, the specific question would be, what? Based on the facts as you know them now, what do you think would be the grounds for the Justice Department to indict um, former President Trump? And secondly, what do you think is the importance of doing that? And I guess I'll add a third one, which is Trump and his, I guess, one of his, I guess, allies, I'll call him Senator Lindsey Graham, have basically alluded to the fact or suggested that if such a thing were to happen, that there would be riots in the country. Would would that be a reason not to indict him if it were true? Of course not. I mean, we can't allow domestic terrorists to hold us up and to say that uh, there's somebody who can be above the law or a whole gang of people who can be above the law. The moment we do that, we've really given up. I mean, there are many threats to democracy. We've talked about some of them. The way in which the government is less representative of popular opinion than it should be. Um, but another threat is a threat that for the first time in our history, we almost didn't have a peaceful transition to the winner of the election. And now Trump and his acolytes, the uh, QAnons and and the, and uh, and the Proud Boys and the rest are basically saying we're going to succeed next time, regardless of whether we win the Electoral College. We're going to make sure uh, that that we are in power. They threaten violence. There was violence, of course, on January sixth, and so a threat of violence if the leader of the gang is held accountable uh, is the last thing that we should succumb to. That's why. I'm quite confident that Merrick Garland, who ever since he too was my student some 50, actually in his case, 40 40 years ago, I'm quite confident that Merrick Garland sees it the same way. It's not that he started out being determined to indict Trump, but he's followed the evidence and it's pointing to serious crimes. Right now, the most obvious are the crime of espionage, handling top secret information, that you steal from the White House when you have no right to keep it, when everyone agrees that it belongs to the government, and putting it in insecure places, clear violation of the Espionage Act, punishable by 10 years in prison. I could rattle off several other things that he's violated in Mar-a-Lago. I think the the stalling tactic of the special master is not likely to do anything more than hold things off until late this year. But there is also the violation of the uh, Insurrection Act, Section 2383 of the Federal Criminal Code talks about anyone who incites or gives aid and comfort to an insurrection uh, is guilty of serious federal felony that disqualifies that person from ever running again. 
There's also seditious conspiracy, of which I think this president is probably uh, guilty in the attempt to uh, have false electoral slates. The evidence that the January 6th committee is more publicly displaying is being privately developed, or at least developed through grand juries with their rules of secrecy by the Department of Justice. Uh, And it's only a matter of time until that ripens into indictable offenses. But the clock is ticking. And if an indictment is not handed down in one or more of these areas by early 23, 23, I'm going forward by, by a century, by early 2283, 2223. Uh, if that doesn't happen, then the pretrial motions, the long delay between uh, indictment and trial is really very likely to lead to something less than a conviction before we have the next presidential election. And that's quite dangerous. Well, there may be one small one step that was taken on that while we've been on the air. Um, one of the uh, organizers over our event tonight, David Lehrer, sent me a, a brief bulletin saying that uh, the Federal Appeals Court, uh, the 11th Circuit, had issued a ruling saying that the Justice Department can regain access to sensitive files that the FBI took from Mar-a-Lago, apparently overturning um, lower court judges' ruling. I have not been able to read the details, but but, but it appears that that situation is now fluid. Yeah, I expected that. It seemed to me that there was nothing to be said for Judge Cannon's bizarre and unprecedented attempt to tell the Department of Justice, yes, you can look at the uh, top secret documents for purposes of protecting the nation, but you can't look at them in connection with your criminal investigation. Anybody with any experience knows that you can't do things with half your head or with sort of like the sound of one hand clapping. That was an impossible position. And the Department of Justice wrote a very powerful brief urging that that part of her ruling, the part that prevents them from using the classified seized documents that the president's, the former president's lawyers weren't even willing to claim in court had been declassified the way he kept tweeting about or or putting uh, social media comments about. Um, they weren't even willing to claim that they'd been declassified. In any event, what happened was, I think, predictable and shows that that the reckoning is coming for this president. So far, one government official, a uh, county commissioner in the state of New Mexico, has had the uh, Insurrection Act applied to him. Um, He was the head of a group called Cowboys for Trump, and he was at the January 6th event and and a state court judge there. Um, you know, said he could not hold office any longer and he was stripped of his position. Is there any difference between stripping him of that position and uh, doing something against the former president using that using that statute? Well, it's not a statute. It's a part of the United States Constitution. And that's Pardon me. because no, it's no, no, no problem. Henry. The, the, the Congress did pass a statute, the uh, Amnesty Act of 1873 that basically excused wholesale a whole bunch of Confederates from that disqualification. This guy, the head of the Cowboys for Trump, argued that the Amnesty Act protected him because it basically removed from the Constitution the disqualification provision for people who take an oath to uphold the Constitution and then are guilty of insurrection against the government. The district judge, county district court judge 
in New Mexico rightly said that that argument won't fly. That provision of the Constitution can't be erased by Congress. And then it proceeded to find, based on the preponderance of the evidence, that this fellow who had been head of Cowboys for Trump was, although he wasn't himself violent, he just entered the Capitol, he was himself an insurrectionist. And that principle could be applied against people who also didn't commit insurrection. He wasn't convicted of insurrection. He was convicted only of trespass. You don't, however, and this court, I think, was right in holding that, need to have a criminal conviction in order to be disqualified under that section. You can be disqualified if a civil court finds, by a preponderance of the evidence, that you are guilty of organizing, aiding and abetting, or conducting an insurrection. If that were found about the former president, if they're in a criminal trial under the federal insurrection crime or in a civil proceeding, then he too would be disqualified. Thank you. We have a number of good questions from the audience. Before I start on them, I want to ask you one more broad question. On the top of your Twitter page, at least today, you have a quote from the noted author and social critic, Ananj Gridadaras, who's who has written several terrific books. And I want to read the quote and ask you why you put this quote up there. And what he said was, we are living through a revolt against the future. The future will prevail. I put it there because my fundamental feeling is hopeful. Despite all of the dark shadows that cross our paths, the risk that another insurrection may occur, the risk that there will be a successful coup, uh, the risk that violence will uh, will erupt when the president is finally held criminally accountable if he is. Despite all of that, I have the feeling that the young people and people of goodwill and good faith are going to ultimately triumph. In my article about the terrible Dobbs decision called Deconstructing Dobbs in the, uh, issue, the September issue, first issue of in September of the New York Review of Books, I end on a hopeful note that what happened in Kansas didn't stay in Kansas. That is, Kansas decided in the face of this horrendous ripping out of the U.S. Constitution of the right to bodily integrity for women, Kansas decided in a massive way by an unexpected margin to affirm the proposition that the state constitution should protect the bodily integrity of women. And across the country, the revulsion against the idea that the government can control our bodies, can control our bedrooms, can control our private and personal lives in a kind of handmaid's tale dystopia, while it had better keep hands off of business and not regulate it too closely, uh, a decision that the Supreme Court essentially made in West Virginia against EPA in the uh, so-called major question doctrine that it deployed. The combination of all that is generating a massive backlash. And that makes me hopeful. It makes me hopeful that the trajectory of change will look forward rather than backward. And that's a feeling that I've had and that I, I guess, reflected in that choice of a quotation. One viewer wants to uh, wants to know, would it take a constitutional amendment to abolish the Electoral College? 
Yes, it would. The The idea that we could get around the Electoral College with the uh, National Popular Vote Compact in which states bind themselves to assign all of their electors to the winner of the national popular vote, the idea that that would work even if enough states would do it, which is extremely unlikely, uh, is, I think, fanciful. I think the Supreme Court would say that, that that's not consistent with the structure of the Constitution and the Electoral College. Uh, anyway, it would be an interstate compact that would require Congress to approve it, and I can't imagine Congress approving it. Okay. We've had a few questions about what is known as the shadow docket of the Supreme Court. Could you uh, talk about that a little bit? Well, it was a cleverly named word for something the court has done for a long time, and that is maintain the ability to render emergency rulings without full briefing or argument. The change is that it is using those rulings to make massively new law. It's using it you know, using those rulings to erode the separation of church and state in cases arising out of uh, various COVID-related restrictions. It's 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 using it, uh, it used that docket, that is the ability to decide cases more or less overnight without briefing or argument to uphold without much ado about, about the details to uphold this crazy uh, Texas law that allows vigilante justice, gives bounties for people who uh, sue doctors or clinics or people who help women have abortions and, and collect a bounty for every instance of an abortion that's that's stopped. Uh, the shadow docket is something that the court has abused, I think, and I'm hopeful that it will be restricted by by legislation. We've got a couple of questions on a, on a, on a, well, I guess these are all hot button topics, but I'll just read you this one. What is your perspective on Ginny Thomas and whether this is the, the wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas and whether her actions related to the uh, attempts to overturn the last election should mean that Justice Thomas um, would have to be disqualified in any case involving January the 6th? And the, the sort of the more broader question, is there any way to force a justice to recuse himself or herself from a particular case? Well, the second question, unfortunately, the answer is no. There's no way to force it. it can't be done from outside the court, and the chief justice has no power to do it. The answer, however, to the first part of your question is, of course, he should recuse himself. In fact, it's not even optional, although there's no enforcement. Uh, 28 U.S. Code Section 455 says that any judge or justice of any federal court, including the Supreme Court, no exception for justices, must recuse him or herself from any case in which the spouse has a direct involvement. And she certainly was directly involved in all kinds of aspects of January 6th, and he failed to recuse himself from a case where some of her communications were involved, where the papers were sought from the National Archives. Right. Okay. Um, you participated, in fact, you were one of the lead witnesses in the 1987 confirmation hearings of uh, Supreme Court nominee uh, Robert Bork, who was defeated, as I recall, by a vote of 58 to 42, which was a, a significant margin of defeat. 
I think that was probably the last Supreme Court confirmation hearing where where any specifically specific answers were given by the nominee. There was sort of, I guess, what I would call a lot of ducking and fainting since then. And a member, Mr. Members of the audience want to know, is there any way that the senators can get more more clear answers, more specific answers out of nominees? Unfortunately not. The only way they can do it is by refusing to confirm someone who is dodging and weaving and and basically not saying what what they know. But the trouble is it would be disqualifying clearly for a justice to say uh, in advance how he or she would rule on something like uh, whether Griswold should be overruled or Obergefell should be overruled. I think the hearings themselves have lost their utility. In the Bork case, it was kind of a national seminar on the Constitution. And he sort of told us what he believed. And the majority of the Senate said, that's not the Constitution we believe in. And that's the way perhaps it ought to work. But people took from that the lesson that they should just hide and they should figure out clever ways of saying nothing. The president knows what the justice is likely to do in various cases. And in the case of of Trump's selection of Gorsuch and Kavanaugh and Barrett, he made no bones about it. He said, I'm going to pick people that have been vetted by Leonard Leo and the Federalist Society uh, to be sure votes to overrule Roe v. Wade. And he delivered. Uh, But of course, when they were asked, what do you think of Roe v. Wade? They went through the mumbling, oh, well, it's obviously a precedent of the court. Well, of course, it's a precedent of the court. That doesn't tell you what they'll do with it. And, you know, if they really knew for sure what they would have done with it, that would have been disqualifying. Unfortunately, they probably did know because they had a clear agenda. Right. So one of the two cases that are coming up before the court this term, um, the, one of the issues is what the key issue is whether or not that um, the court should overturn a decision from 20, nearly 20 years ago, Grutter versus Bollinger, re- relating to affirmative action in college admissions. And they're asking that this be overturned. And so one of the viewers asked specifically if you could address the case against Harvard University in this regard. Right. Well, the, the trial was very elaborate and there was no evidence that Harvard was accepting less people of Chinese origin than it would have if it were operating in a a way that was blind to the race or ethnicity of applicants. But I don't think the court is going to be affected by that record. It's simply going to say, Harvard admits that it pays attention to the racial and ethnic background of applicants as one factor, and that is in itself unconstitutional and a violation of of federal law. That's what I'm quite sure they're going to say, uh, even though they, as I indicated earlier, can't look to the original meaning of the 14th Amendment to justify that. It's part of the the long game uh, that Roberts has been playing. He's believed ever since he was a young lawyer at the Justice Department that attempts to eradicate race discrimination and overcome its legacy by methods that pay any attention to race are automatically illegal. Well, that pretty much says that the government has to just butt out of the game of trying to achieve racial justice. Uh, and that, I think, is, is, is sad. I don't think that is what the law ought to be, what it really is in terms of the, of the purposes of the 14th Amendment. 
And I think if the court were enlarged in a in a reasonable way, eventually the court would return to a better understanding of that principle. Okay, so you, I know a couple of minutes ago you were talking about that you had a had a, a view of long term optimism, but some of the viewers want to know in the short term, how much do you think contraception? starting with the Griswold decision and same-sex marriage from the Obergefell decision a few years. In the short term, how much, how much under threat do you think those decisions are? I think Obergefell is under a great deal of threat. And I think that the, the court has really signaled that it's not likely to hold on to the principle of same-sex marriage. There's going to be a massive cultural pushback. So I think it's not clear that that the program that that Justices Alito and Thomas and several others have in mind is going to be carried out. They may be reluctant, basically, to plunge their own uh, their own acceptability in the country as far as that would plunge it. Griswold itself, I think, is very much under threat in the sense that there is no bright line between contraception and abortion, despite the theological view that that the human soul enters the fetus or the embryo at some precise moment, there really is no moment. It's all a continuous process. And, you know, a great many miscarriages raise the question, was it intentional? Was it non-intentional? The entire area of reproductive uh, decision-making and medical assistance to women who are pregnant or might become pregnant uh, is very much up for grabs. And as a practical matter, more and more people are afraid of of performing procedures that somebody might call an abortion. So I think that's an area where we're really facing short-term as well as long-term trouble. Okay. One uh, viewer asks, um, following up on your comment about that you can't make a Supreme Court justice recuse, um, is there any way that a Supreme Court justice could be impeached, and is there any history of it? One. Supreme Court justice was impeached, but then acquitted. It's really extremely difficult to establish, as one would have to, that the justice has committed a high crime and misdemeanor. Uh, I think the prospects of impeaching someone like Clarence Thomas are close enough to zero that for someone like me who wants to make a difference, I just don't want to concentrate my efforts on something that hopeless. Well, I... Since a good a good practical answer, I have to say it's. I think I find it more than a little ironic that Clarence Thomas, who has spent a lot of time criticizing decisions of the Warren Court, that there's one court of decision of Warren Court that he has never criticized, and it's the one that allows him to be married to his wife, Loving versus Loving versus Virginia. Um, what's your view on whether the filibuster should be uh, done away with? I think it ought to be. I, I see nothing, nothing worth saving about that profoundly anti-democratic device. And the argument, and it's made by a number of Democrats as well as Republicans, that the filibuster is an important protection for minority rights in the Senate, and that if we get rid of it, we will someday regret it. I think, again, as with enlarging the court, makes the mistake of assuming that those who have a opposite view are not going to get rid of it when it serves their purposes to get rid of it. So got a time for a couple more, I think. Today, as you know, 
the, the attorney general of New York announced a massive lawsuit against Trump, three of his children, alleging a, a, a myriad, 220 pages worth of, of, of illegalities in conducting his business. And the question that comes from, from a viewer is the following. Some legal experts were saying today that it would take years for the state of New York to get a judgment against Trump because of the slow way that our justice system works. Why is this true of high profile people like Trump, but not of average Americans? Well, I think the system is not well designed to protect people without much money. It's why when I was asked to head up a new project called the Access to Justice Initiative in the Obama administration, I kind of launched a new office that was then shuttered in the Trump years and has been reopened under Merrick Garland. It'll take a long time, really, to make the system of justice as equal as I would like it to be. But I think the fact that the day of reckoning looks like it may really be coming for Trump uh, is encouraging in that respect. That is, it did take three years of investigation, uh, I think about three years, maybe a little less, for Letitia James to compile an absolutely devastating case. I haven't read the whole 220-page complaint, but it looks like there's a devastating case that Trump personally and repeatedly organized a system of defrauding banks, insurance companies, and the Internal Revenue Service in ways that fully justify her criminal referral and the uh, the remedies that she asked for in this civil case. So I think I think justice is coming for at least for at least that that uh, powerful character. Well, I think that's probably a, a a fairly high note to conclude on, given that there were a number of downbeat things. And I want to thank you for uh, responding fully to uh, all the questions, unlike many of the nominees for the court recently. And I have uh, and I also want to remind the audience of our next program, which, as uh, Janice said earlier, that Ruth Giot will be on talking about her new book about autocrats and questioned by Larry Diamond, the distinguished Stanford political science professors. Uh, good night to all. Good night and thank you.